modes of thought in Interran literature. Second year classics, Harbridge University. Sorry. Uh, um, Raquel, go ahead and play some of that video, would you? Does anybody recognize this? It's credited by cinephiles as the first horror film ever made. Uh, it's this French guy, Georges Millier, a pioneer, really, of the moving image. Um, along with like Moybridge and others. He directed this short film in 1896 called The House of the Devil. It's actually the, the Manor of the Devil, um, which establishes what we now think of as really common, you know, kind of tropey horror motifs. It's three minutes long, and you see the devil, ghosts, a vampire, and a witch. It's of menagerie of every kind of monster you can think of. And this film is the first to portray monsters with the camera, which is pretty cool. Um, but, you know, every civilization has had its myths and told tales about monsters. Every single one. Monsters are a part of our history as much as religion or language or economics, they have always been there. So, let's stop that. Okay, you can watch the rest of it online. Um, I'll send you the link. Personally, I've always been a werewolf guy. I mean, if I could be a monster, I'd go for like a werewolf or a Jekyll and Hyde kind of situation. Um, so I could be normal at least part of the time, <laughs> you know? What about you? What's your favorite monster? Zombies. Nice. 
I love Night of the Living Dead, right? Yeah, I know, it's old school, sue me. How do you even know that flick? Um, I get it, it's your dad, right? Your dad showed you, yeah, yeah, okay. Huh. Here's an interesting fun fact about monsters. Did you know that the popularity of zombies and vampires rise and fall with the political party in power? When there's a Republican in the White House, zombies, representing like mindless consumption and mass contagion, the, the lower class, right? They rise from the dead, pun intended. And when a Democrat is in power, vampires, representing excess and godlessness and sexual freedom, hedonism, the elites, they pop out of their coffin. The Exorcist came at the height of the satanic panic. Godzilla came from the nuclear fallout of Hiroshima. So what I'm suggesting here, not hard to follow, is that monsters are an ongoing reflection of social self-image. Monsters help us make sense of our fears, and on a deeper level, they reflect the anxieties of the society as a whole. Which brings me to today's topic, who are the monsters of Antera, and what can we glean about the Antaran civilization from those monsters? I'm gonna start with one of my favorite Antaran myths. Raquel, can you show us that slide, please? So on the screen, you can see this bas-relief carving from, from Dark City, from Prime Day. This is on a wall facing a massive courtyard outside the Idiot King's Palace complex, so the northeast section of the old city, right? And this carving depicts a creature with nine arms, Petstaloa, who seems to be attacking or chasing a young female. This female, it turns out, is a goddess known as Naya Nitsui. The story goes that Naya Nitsui was the most beautiful of the goddesses, so much so that all the gods, both male and female, lusted after her, which created chaos in the Valley of the Gods. Um, but Naya Nitsui had the good or bad luck to fall in love with an ordinary mortal, and the gods and goddesses were furious. Now, remember what I said about pronouns in Antara, right? They, they were all gender neutral until they choose to be known as Mr. Mem, or Miss, well, Mrs., because it's at marriage, um, Ra. So it's hard to track a little bit, but it seems as though Naya Nitsui fell in love with another girl, and somehow they had five children. And these five children, were even more beautiful than the goddess herself, outshining the sun, the moon, and the stars. But as punishment for marrying outside of the immortals, the other gods, her jealous suitors, right, they drugged her and they tore her daughters limb from limb. And the girls cried out to their mother, but she could not hear them, so deep was she sleeping almost like death. And when she woke up covered in blood, that was not the blood of her body, but her blood nonetheless. She wished for the eternal darkness of death to swallow her whole, 
for she knew that her children had suffered greatly. So the gods killed all her, her children. This is brutal, right? Ratafani continues, quote, Nyanitsui was consumed by an intense desire to bring her daughters back. She sacrificed animals, but the gods did not listen. She sacrificed humans, praying to her father, a thousand-eyed Ikopa, that she could rebirth at least one daughter of the five. Her father, I guess satiated by gobbling up the souls of the sacrificed, granted her wish, <clears throat> for he still had love for his beautiful daughter. He admonished her, of all the gods and goddesses, was there not one that she could have chosen? Then she would not have doomed herself to a life of suffering, as even one daughter would still mean that four were missing. In a rage, Nyanitsui gathered the limbs of her children and stitched them together, vowing that all of her daughters would live again as one. And with the dark power of her sorrow, she created Petsdaloa, a ten-legged, nine-armed monster who howls endlessly with the pain of a child betrayed by her mother and her gods. Yeah, and what happens next? Any guesses? Yeah, Petsdaloa turns on Nyanitsui and tears her to pieces, devours her creator, and takes her power. Why nine arms? Well, we'll come back to this, but one of the arms turned into a snake and slithered away, crawled off the edge of the world, according to Ratafani. So this serpent, this serpent myth, right, it's everywhere. And I believe that it is a connector from the culture of Antara to the first written cultures that we'll discover, particularly the serpent in the Epic of Gilgamesh. We'll go over that later. So this story is, uh, it's brutal, right? I mean, it's one of my favorites <clears throat> for a lot of reasons. Um, we've got Prometheus shaping man from a lump of clay. Uh, God forms Adam from the dust of the ground, forms Eve from the rib of Adam. Frankenstein brings to life Frankenstein's monster. And this story is told over and over again throughout history. Uh, do we have any ideas on what makes this version specific to Antara? Yeah, right, the number nine definitely has significance. We see it uh, a lot in Antaran writings and their math system also seems to have been base nine. Hi, Ron, what, what do you got? It's a class thing, the immortal versus mortal. Okay, bring it back to politics once again. Um, great, yeah, that divide 
is cognate with the strict caste system in Antera. Well, I say strict in as much as it was very well delineated. It wasn't strict in terms of there being no movement between the castes. Let's, let's get into it a little bit. In my thinking, these castes, and we see them in so many different cultures, right? Um, they're reflections of the way we see ourselves. So there's a, a psychoanalytic way of looking at it. Or they offer some sort of evolutionary advantage, which is what we would call the anthropological point of view. So yeah, ancient Greece, ancient China, all of European history, all of these riddled through and through with social stratification. And in Antera, the caste system was, I don't know, I'd say it was a bit more of a pie chart than a layer cake. One of the odd byproducts of the idiot king experiment is that no one really wanted to be in the executive caste, right? This, this was not really the same thing as nobility. Um, no, no, no. So there was no aspiration attached to having power, not if you think you're gonna get locked in a dark room for the rest of your life, right? So interesting. The diviners, this ruling class was called, uh, were the ones who would make contact with the idiot kings. Then we have eight other castes as well, right? The number nine again. Uh, we have the artists, the builders, the growers, the thinkers, the before people, the sailors, the darkness, and the dead. We'll go into all those different castes in a different class, but uh, there were many people who had no caste at all. Um, so again, if you think of it as kind of a pie chart, the castes are kind of on the outside, and then there's this ring in the center. They had no caste at all, and they were just referred to as the living. So as we look into these castes in more depth, you know, we, we can really start to see how the culture works together and how they enacted their, their goals as a society. But I, I don't want to get too sidetracked with that right now. <coughs> Did, does anybody else hear that? The dripping sound? Uh, never mind. Uh, in this story, even the immortals can die. And it's actually the only myth out of the 9,729 that we've logged so far in which that happens. An immortal being dies. I think that focusing on that begs this question. What does it mean to kill an immortal? So if the monster is humanity removed, right, uh, created by a goddess in mindless grief, without thought to the consequences to the world, to her family, to herself, then the goddess herself stands for a human aspiration, a higher purpose, a, a sort of goal state. And in this case, I suggest that Nyanetsui stood for parentage in the larger sense creating a core family group that put love and nurture of kin above the state. So what changed in society that the very idea needed to be removed? Something's churning beneath the surface here in Antaran culture, and it's leading us towards the Second Empire.
right? Something happened where we have a culture that had envisioned itself as a group that was collected under this concept of not knowing and accepting each other's ignorance and building strength from that openness, that tolerance, towards a mini collectivization based around the family. That ideology is pushing against this emotional truth that we care about those we know more than we care about society at large. So there is going to be a friction as the culture grew, as the population grew, as the economics and the politics expanded. But in resurrecting her daughters, Nainatsui also resurrected their horror and their pain, which corrupts them into a form that eventually destroys the mother, who was willing to sacrifice everything to get them back. So in this myth, it seems like the ideology about the state, that we should value everyone over an individual or over a family, wins. I'm sorry, that is just so distracting. Uh, that sound, look, let, let's just call it, all right? And um, Raquel, can you hang out for a sec? Uh, I'll be right back. The French part needs meds, dude. What? Isn't he your advisor? Yes. Why? What did you do wrong? Hey, easy now. He's a legend in archaeological lit. Sorry, Raquel, it's just everything he's saying is such a crock of shit. I mean, it's interesting as like an art project, but what the fuck? There's no way to prove anything he's telling us. Have you seen this Discord group? Check it out. Are these all former students? Someone from last year started. There's no evidence of a Chinese submarine accident. Zero. Beijing University has nothing on its website. No faculty listed, no papers published, nothing. You think I don't know that? Jesus. Sophomores. Yes, I know how to use the internet, Chris. But do you really think it's a good idea to trust a government that's got a well-documented history of truth-bending and evidence-tampering? Clearly, the Chinese military scrubbed everything. They want to control this. Evidence of the oldest human society? That's like winning the propaganda lottery, dude. They're not going to give that up. Whatever you say, Raquel. But if you can find a single share of evidence, and I mean besides the Photoshop pictures he keeps showing us, hit me up. Yeah, you'll be the first person I choose to call, Chris. I'm just saying he's batshit, and if he didn't have tenure, he'd be in a padded room. You know it's in his contract he can teach one class of his choosing, right? So he invents this whole fucking weird performance, and it's amazing, like watching a circus act on acid. But you should consider finding a new advisor if you want your thesis to actually mean something. Thanks for the mansplain. I'm a grad student in Archaeolinguistics, Chris. I can make my own decisions. Sure. 
Do me a favor. Show up to class, earn your credit, and move on like everyone else. We done here? Because I'm busy. Modes of Thought in Interran Literature. This podcast is made possible by Harbridge University, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Peeler Prize in Archaeological Literature, and the Harbridge Family Trust, with an in-kind donation and production assistance from Wolf and Door Studio. For more information and a reading list, please visit modesofthoughtpodcast.com. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In June of 2020, an amateur podcaster disappeared from the Carson National Forest while searching for the legendary Finn treasure. But he was adamant that he was onto something big. He was obsessed. He showed her some hand-drawn map to a treasure out in northern New Mexico. The subjective truth is part treasure hunt, part paranormal docudrama. Starring Addison Peacock as Graham Anderson, Back at home, I placed the box on the counter, and I just stared at it for a while. You'd never be able to guess its social impact on the human race by looking at its simplistic design. UFOs, ghosts, reincarnation, and liars. This is the subjective truth. Subscribe now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.